Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, January 19th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. A Beijing lab is found to have mapped COVID weeks before the global outbreak began. India rescues a Houthi-struck cargo ship in the Red Sea. Western nations consider funding Ukraine with frozen Russian assets. A Serbian opposition leader claims he was tortured by the Secret Service. The Ecuadorian prosecutor investigating a live-streamed TV studio attack is killed. A federal report on the Uvalde school shooting is published. Democratic lawmakers introduce a bill to protect IVF access. Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson loses his social media training court case. AI takes center stage at the World Economic Forum. And Apple removes the blood oxygen feature from its smartwatches. A new report says a Beijing lab mapped COVID weeks before its global outbreak. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Washington Post, National Review, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Post. According to federal documents released Wednesday, a Chinese researcher had submitted the genetic sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus to a publicly accessible U.S. database two weeks before the PRC shared the information publicly. The documents were obtained by Republicans on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services documents reportedly show that Dr. Li Li Ren, a virologist at the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences Institute of Pathogen Biology in Beijing, uploaded the information to GenBank, run by the U.S. National Institute of Health, on December 28, 2019. The NIH report sought more information from Ren, stating her submission was incomplete. However, her work on tests, treatments, and vaccines to combat the virus was deleted from GenBank's processing queue on January 16, 2020. This occurred after she did not provide the requested follow-up information. At that time, Beijing repeatedly called the COVID outbreak in Wuhan a viral pneumonia of unknown cause. Ren's findings were similar to what China presented to the World Health Organization on January 11, 2020. At this time, global transmission of the SARS-CoV-2 virus was well underway. Members of the House Committee have suggested Ren's failure to provide additional information suggests interference from Beijing. Representative Kathy McMorris-Rogers, Brett Guthrie, and Morgan Griffiths expressed a need to further probe what the PRC and U.S. officials knew in the early days of COVID. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Melissa nicely laid out the facts on this story, and our first spin is an anti-China narrative from The Hill. The two-week delay between Lily Penn's submission of a paper with a near-complete genetic sequence of COVID and China's official revelations about the disease may have proven costly to the world. This new information puts the spotlight on PRC opacity, even in matters of such crucial importance to the world, such as an early pandemic warning. All this needs a comprehensive probe that can be placed before the world to determine what went wrong. And here's the pro-China narrative from the Global Times. The report of a Chinese researcher's apparent submission of COVID's near-complete genetic sequence is another example of the West looking to put China in a spot over the pandemic. While tracing the origins of the disease is a global need, politicizing it all hinders the process, dividing the world and undermining vital health care. 
Distortions and innuendos are not the scientific way to investigate the origin of an unprecedented global crisis. Washington's partisan animosity should not translate to scapegoating Beijing. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community. This time they say there's a 44% chance that a majority of U.S. intelligence community organizations will support a lab leak hypothesis for SARS-CoV-2 over a natural origin hypothesis by 2025. When I worked in ticketing, I worked at the Oakland A's baseball team, and it was my first experience working a job where every single thing that I did at the job was recorded. So we would use a special ticketing software and it, you could look and see like, all right, this ticket was sold. Who sold it? When did they sell it? Who did they sell it to? And it, it like recorded every single thing about it. You know, oh, yeah. did they, well, what did it get paid for? Did it whatever. So if you screwed something up, you could really figure out who, why, what, where, and how it got screwed up, um, which is good, but also puts an overarching kind of fear over everything you do. And now that was my first experience with that. Now, now we're at a point where every single thing you do on a computer ever can be archived and figured right. out if someone wants to. But in this case, you know, they were able to look back at this person's work log. I know it can be a good thing. We can figure things out, but it makes me nervous to be under that kind of scrutiny. Yeah. Yeah, there's no uh, no forgetting and forgiving mistakes anymore. I think oh. that's so hard for kids, man. India's Navy rescues a cargo ship crew after a Houthi strike in the Red Sea. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Express Tribune, Fox News, Reuters, and the Times of Israel. The Indian Navy said it diverted one of its warships in the Red Sea region on Thursday to rescue a cargo ship, the Genko Picardi, after it was hit by a Houthi strike. Following the strike on the cargo vessel, which was carrying phosphate rock through the Gulf of Aden, the U.S. military said it targeted 14 Houthi missiles that presented an imminent threat to both merchant vessels and U.S. Navy ships. The Houthi missile strike, which the group claims was a direct hit, resulted in a fire on board the American bulk shipping boat, though India said it rescued all 22 crew members and extinguished the fire. U.S. Central Command said the Houthis launched a one-way drone from Yemen, striking what it called a Marshall Islands-flagged, U.S.-owned and operated bulk carrier ship. It was the 34th Houthi attack against commercial ships since November 19, and the second one against a U.S.-owned cargo ship this week. The incident occurred a day after the U.S. designated the Houthis a terrorist organization, a move aimed at depriving the group of funding and weapons it uses to target maritime commerce. The strikes along the Suez Canal and the Red Sea have impacted global economies. This includes Ukraine, which claims its agricultural exports are being affected, and Italian ports, which fear Mediterranean shipping lanes will be bypassed. The attacks have also decreased Egypt's revenue in the Suez Canal by 40% in the first 11 days of January, according to the country's Suez Canal Authority. The World Trade Organization, too, reported that wheat shipments on the canal dropped by almost 40% to a half million metric tons in the first half of the month. Global business leaders have also raised concerns over the potential inflationary impact of the conflict, with freight rates reportedly having almost doubled since early December. The alternative shipping route around South Africa's Cape of Good Hope 
can add between 10 and 14 days to a cargo ship's journey. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. El Pais brings us Narrative A. If this conflict between the Houthis and the West doesn't end soon, the world could see another round of inflationary spikes. Just as the COVID-era inflation was finally repairing itself, the costs of shipping from Asia to Northern Europe have now increased by 173%, and from Asia to the U.S. by 55%. While we haven't yet seen price hikes similar to the COVID peak, economically devastating inflation could very well be on the horizon. And narrative B comes from New York Times. It's fine to draw parallels with COVID supply chain issues, but it's also important to recognize that shipping bottlenecks at the time were a relatively small part of the problem. The larger issue was decreasing labor participation due to virus fear, which resulted in lower productivity and higher prices. The shipping industry has been significantly hit recently, but don't expect a return to 2021-22. The disruptions caused by the Houthis are manageable. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 22% chance that the U.S. will enter a deflationary period before 2030. I do love a boat. That's all I have to say about this. I do like to be on a boat. Yeah, I like being on boats, but boats don't like me being on them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Poor Scott. I think I just need bigger boats. Like I never got sick on like a, a, a Seattle ferry. You know, those are, okay. those are pretty yeah. big. I think my yeah. problem is being on little dinky boats are the worst. Yeah, it would take a um, lot to get a ferry rocking. Yeah. I mean, I have trepidation about going on a cruise as much as I'd like to just sit and re- read a book and eat unlimited food. Yeah. Um, I fear being like trapped on a cruise ship. Like, oh, I don't feel good today. Well, we're on day one of 16. Like, oh, <laughs> God. No. You know, they have like three day ones. So if you really wanted to test that out, you could say, all right, I'm going to do a three day cruise and it stops. Right. So you can just like you could just get off in the Bahamas or wherever and then fly back to Miami if it doesn't work out. If it's really that if I just have to peace out on the entire thing. Yeah. Yeah. I say, I'm yeah. I, I would. You know, the other thing, thing like. Out. If they kick you off a cruise ship because you're too annoying uh, that you're sick, you're just on a smaller boat. They just kick you off onto a little. You just keep getting downgraded <laughs> in terms of how little your boat is. And then more sick. <laughs> yeah, and then they'll kick you out of that boat. You'll just be on a, you know, on a, on a, on a, in a, a kayak. life preserver. Yeah, yeah, you just keep. The more annoying you are, you just keep getting downgraded. So yeah, I'll, I'll that keep, goes keep for drunk myself. people too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you just keep There's whatever a jail vehicle on you're a in. Boat. My family yeah. was on a cruise in, uh, earlier this year, or I guess in, in August, and uh, the people next to them were uh, in a drunken rage and like yelling and throwing things and uh, trying to start fights on the balcony. And uh, mm. they're like, well, we do have a jail on the boat. <laughs> yeah. Famously, you know, Veterans Stadium in, uh, in Philadelphia, where the Phillies and Eagles used to play, there's a jail in this. If you act up, we oh, have man. a jail right in this building. Uh, I used to work at the Oakland Coliseum in in California, and there was a cell in there too. Mm. Um, so yeah, and they got to have somewhere to put somebody who we, is acting up. Western nations consider funding Ukraine with frozen Russian assets. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Guardian, the Washington Post, ABC News, CNBC, the Independent, and Newsweek. As Ukraine's allies face shrinking support for aid packages to Kyiv, including a U.S. congressional stalemate, more Western officials are signing on to the idea of using frozen Russian assets as a funding mechanism. 
while lawmakers in Europe and Washington seek to find legal ways to utilize $300 billion of Russian central bank funds, which are mostly sitting in Europe, the U.S. Biden administration also wants to find more immediate funding methods. As the U.S., which has frozen a total of roughly $600 billion in Russian funds, and the G7 allies are seeking legal means to do so, a bipartisan group of lawmakers in Washington is pushing legislation called the Rebuilding Economic Prosperity and Opportunity for Ukrainians Act, which includes the use of frozen assets. This comes as the World Bank estimates Ukraine's 10-year recovery will cost $411 billion. Some countries have already transferred sanctioned funds to Kyiv. Last May, $5.4 million was seized from Russian businessman Konstantin Malafayev to a U.S. Department of State fund for rebuilding Ukraine. Belgium, which is taxing seized assets, said it's already collected 1.7 billion euros, which it will use to buy military equipment and humanitarian aid for Ukraine, as well as reconstruction support. Regarding Western security pacts with Ukraine, such as the UK's recent agreement with Kyiv, Moscow's foreign ministry on Wednesday disparaged it as mainly advisory assistance, followed by Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's alleging such agreements are the West's way of avoiding direct conflict and accepting Ukraine into NATO or the EU. More than 500 miles from the Ukrainian border, Kyiv said it launched drone strikes against an oil facility in St. Petersburg, Russia, with a Ukrainian military source calling it a new phase of strikes. While three drones were launched in the early hours of Thursday, Moscow said all of them were intercepted. According to Vladimir Rogov, the Russian-aligned administrator of Ukraine's Zaporizhia region, Leningrad, was the 19th region Ukraine has attacked so far. He also noted there was no damage or injuries during the attempted assault on the Baltic Sea oil terminal. Thanks, Melissa. The anti-Russian narrative comes from Atlantic Council. While Putin was somewhat successful in hiding his true desires earlier on in this conflict, he is now openly using words like conquest when referring to his military ambitions. If the West wasn't sure about the threat of Russian expansion before, they certainly should be now. It's now critical to unlock all sources of funding for Ukraine to push back on the Kremlin. Here's the pro-Russia narrative from RT. If Russia was seen as a threat to countries other than Ukraine, why would European stalwarts like Germany vote 485 to 178 in Parliament against sending long-range missiles to Kyiv? Even if Ukraine was given all these fancy weapons and ammunition, it wouldn't change the outcome of this conflict. Ukraine is being strung along with small handouts until the world finally stops caring. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 26% chance that Russia will have significantly expanded its controlled territory in Ukraine by January 1st, 2026. Serbia's opposition leader says he was beaten by the Secret Service. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the new European, Vietzi, the European Western Balkans, Associated Press, and The Guardian. Nikola Sandilovic, an opposition leader in Serbia, claims he was beaten and tortured by Serbian Secret Service police, causing him to be paralyzed on his left side and suffer damage. He spoke out for the first time since the alleged incident, releasing a statement on Wednesday. On January 3rd, a black van allegedly came to Sandilovic's home and took him to the Security Intelligence Agency headquarters, where approximately 15 government agents beat him. 
The politician was hospitalized the next day before being transferred to a prison where he could not communicate with the outside world. Sandilovic was released from a detention center in the southern Serbian city of Nice on Monday, according to his lawyer, Sedemir Stoshkovic, who added that Western pressure contributed to the release. Serbia's public prosecutor's office said that Sandilovic faced up to 30 days in detention for a suspected criminal act of causing racial, national, and religious hatred. A photo depicting a beaten Sandilovic circulated on X January 4th, but the prosecutor's office released a statement on January 11th, saying that hospital findings showed no injuries. Sandilovic has been under scrutiny for reposting a video of him visiting the grave of Adam Jashari, a founder of the Kosovo Liberation Army who was killed by Serbian police in 1998. The Serbian Republican Party leader has also apologized for alleged war crimes Serbs committed against ethnic Albanians during the late 1990s. The incident comes as protesters carry out demonstrations against President Aleksandr Vucic's populist government, claiming that the December 17th election was stolen. Vucic and his Serbian Progressive Party deny the allegations. Thank you, Scott. Here's Narrative A from the New European. The reprehensible abduction and abuse of Nikola Sandilovich demonstrates the autocratic and oppressive nature of the Vucic regime. While the government accuses Sandilovich of promoting unrest by simply posting a video of a Kosovan leader's grave, Sandilovich's real crime is his criticism of Vucic. The Serbian government clearly has no qualms about abusing political dissidents, and the actions taken against Sandilovich show that the Vucic regime doesn't value democracy at all. And Beta Briefing brings us Narrative B. Nikola Sandilovic is a politician who has no support from the Serbian people or its government. So he's now making up lies to undermine Serbian society and promote ethnic tension. There's no evidence that suggests that intelligence agents beat Sandilovic, and he is trying to gain Western sympathy by running a smear campaign against President Vucic and his government. Perhaps Sandilucic should try to win over the Serbian people instead of making up lies to sow discord in Serbian politics. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 46% chance that Serbia will be part of the European Union in 2050. The Ecuadorian prosecutor investigating a live-streamed TV studio attack is killed. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, El País, The Associated Press, The Independent, CBC, and The Daily Mail. Cesar Suarez, the public prosecutor in charge of the criminal investigation into the storming of an Ecuadorian television station by gang members last week, was killed Wednesday in an ambush as he was driving to court in the city of Guayaquil. At the time of his assassination, Suarez had detained at least 13 people in connection with the TV station attack. Suarez, the country's top anti-corruption prosecutor, was traveling without a security detail, and his death shows gangs are now targeting state institutions. Diana Salazar, Ecuador's attorney general, responded to the killing with a video posted to X, formerly Twitter, saying prosecutors will not stop going after gangs and other crime groups. Previously, President Daniel Noboa last week responded to the increase in gang violence with a declaration saying Ecuador is in an internal armed conflict. He proclaimed a state of emergency for 60 days, imposed overnight curfews, and declared 22 criminal gangs as terrorist organizations. 
Ecuadorian police are searching for those responsible for Suarez's murder, and a nationwide manhunt is ongoing. Ecuador was once considered one of South America's most peaceful countries, but in recent years, it has become a drug export route for Colombian and Peruvian cocaine, resulting in an explosion of organized crime, gangs, and violence, with close links to Mexican drug cartels. All right, thanks for those interesting facts, Melissa. Narrative A comes from El Pais. Just when it seems Naboa had made Ecuador safer, the gangs have stepped up their efforts to dismantle the state by exacting violence on top officials. But the government can't give up. It's time to make sure every official has a security detail and that double the effort is made to combat these terrorists. The future of Ecuador is at stake, but it's salvageable. Here's Narrative B from The Guardian. Corruption is deeply rooted in Ecuadorian society, and the campaign against it has been lost. Numerous neighborhoods have been overtaken by violent gangs operating on behalf of foreign drug cartels, and the authorities are powerless to stop them. Suarez's murder seems to be the final nail in the coffin for a country that's now seeing citizens flee in droves to the United States. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 20% chance there will be a successful coup d'etat in Ecuador before 2040. Oh, Ecuador. God, what a crisis. It just feels like every every different theater in the world is like heating up a little bit, just just a few degrees at a time, as the world incidentally is heating up a few degrees at a time as well. Right, right. The DOJ's report on the Uvalde shooting site's cascading failures. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Post, New York Times, Associated Press, CNN, and ABC News. A U.S. Department of Justice report released Thursday states that police responding to the deadly school shooting in May 2022 in Uvalde, Texas, demonstrated no urgency in addressing the shooting and failed to treat the incident as an active shooter situation. The 660-page DOJ report is the most comprehensive federal account of the police response to the shooting at Robb Elementary School, where 19 students and two teachers were killed. The report describes how it took law enforcement officers 77 minutes before they breached the door and killed the shooter because the incident was being treated as a barricaded suspect situation instead of as an active shooting. This is determined to be the primary failing of the response. Police Chief Pete Arredondo, then acting Uvalde Police Chief Mariano Pargas, and Uvalde County Sheriff Ruben Nolasco are criticized in the report for failing to take command or control of the situation, leading to a lack of coordination and urgency between organizations. The medical response and crime scene investigation after the shooting were also criticized, with the report calling the medical response chaotic and disorganized. Critical evidence in the case was also reported to have been ignored by investigators, with the investigation hampered by too many people contaminating the scene of the crime. To create the report, the DOJ visited Uvalde nine times, and spent 54 days in the small Texas town, conducting more than 260 interviews with people from more than 30 organizations involved with the response and the following investigation. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. We'll start with a narrative A from ABC News. The transparency in this report is a step in the right direction. Hopefully, it will give families the answers they need to move forward and for the right people to be held accountable for this tragedy. Law enforcement failed that day, but there's a chance to learn from its mistakes and prevent a repeat incident. And Narrative B comes from CNN. 
While this is the most comprehensive effort to provide answers to what happened at Robb Elementary, more is still needed. The district attorney has not finished her assessment and has not decided whether any law enforcement can be criminally charged. No one has apologized or taken accountability for the response to the shooting. These families deserve more. Democrats propose a bill to codify the rights to IVF. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Huffington Post, and Forbes. U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth, Democrat of Illinois, and Representative Susan Wild, Democrat of Pennsylvania, introduced a bill on Thursday called the Access to Family Building Act to make access to in vitro fertilization, or IVF, and other assisted reproductive technology a statutory right. If passed, the law would permit people across the country to retain all their genetic material used during fertility care and allow the Justice Department to take legal action against any state that tries to limit access to fertility treatments. Duckworth cited the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade in 2022 and the subsequent abortion laws passed by Republican states as her reason for the proposed measure. During IVF, which consists of fertilizing eggs with sperm in a lab and then inserting the embryo into a woman's uterus, some embryos are discarded, which may currently violate certain state laws against terminating pregnancies. According to some experts, the 2022 Supreme Court decision doesn't necessarily pertain to IVF, though some of the language in certain state laws may cover it. That same year, Republicans blocked a unanimous consent proposal that would have codified a right to birth control and IVF. This comes as an estimated 2.3% of babies born every year in the U.S. are conceived via assisted reproductive technology, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Thanks, Melissa. This Democratic narrative comes from Senator Tammy Duckworth. After Republicans stripped women of their right to determine when they want to build families, It's more important than ever to protect their access to how they do it. Millions of Americans rely on IVF, one of the more affordable procedures, and other technologies to aid them in the pursuit of having children. If the GOP continues down its restrictive path, it'll eventually take even more control over women's bodies. Building families when and how you want must be defended. And the Republican narrative is from the National Review. On top of the very obvious ethical concerns of IVF, such as abortion and the freezing of embryos, there are many other reasons for concern. First and foremost, prioritizing the use of and right to IVF has led scientists away from researching the underlying causes of infertility. Another secret Democrats probably want hidden is that a majority of women drop out of IVF treatment due to the psychological toll it takes on them. Instead of trying to overhaul biology, there must be work on repairing the natural systems that don't require risky experiments. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the United States before 2030. Jordan Peterson loses his social media training court case. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Newsweek, The National Post, and CP24. Canadian clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson has claimed that the war has barely started. After losing a legal bid to have courts overturn a policy he described as a social media re-education camp ordered by the College of Psychologists of Ontario. Three judges from the Ontario Court of Appeal on Tuesday dismissed Peterson's motion seeking for the case to be re-examined after an earlier hearing in a lower divisional court also went against him. The appeals court gave no reason. 
Peterson gained attention in 2016 when he released a series of self-published YouTube videos explaining why he refused to comply with a newly passed Canadian law requiring him, as a university professor, to address transgender students by their desired pronoun. Critics argued this was transphobic, but he maintained that his quarrel wasn't about transgender rights, but with a law allegedly violating his freedom of speech. The latest dispute also centers around free speech, with the Ontario College of Psychologists, which Peterson has been a member of since 1999, mandating him to undergo social media training following public comments he made. The complaint includes Peterson's criticisms of Canadian politicians, as well as social media posts about transgender actor Elliot Page and a plus-size Sports Illustrated model. In a divisional court hearing in August 2023, Peterson's argument that these were off-duty remarks was rejected by three judges. In the ruling, Justice Paul Shabus wrote that Peterson could not have it both ways and avoid the responsibility that comes with speaking from a trusted capacity. Peterson, who has exhausted all possible legal avenues, wrote on X, There's nothing they can take from me that I'm unwilling to lose. In a column for the National Post, he added that he has no regrets about his comments and would say them again. Here's the left narrative from the Toronto Star. This ruling confirms that even when Peterson thinks he's off-duty, his remarks can still harm the public trust and confidence in his profession, particularly if those comments are degrading, demeaning, and unprofessional, as some of the complaints suggest. This was the right decision. And the National Post brings us the right narrative. This is an outrageous affront to free speech. The College of Psychologists was wrong to try to exercise control over Peterson's opinions, and the courts were just as disgraceful in upholding this decision, effectively creating a re-education camp for political speech. This decision must be immediately reversed. And here's the nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's an 81% chance that Pierre Poyevra will become Prime Minister of Canada before 2026. AI discussions take place at the World Economic Forum. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the World Economic Forum and CNN. Artificial intelligence, or AI, as a driving force for the economy and society has been named as one of four key themes at the 2024 World Economic Forum in Davos, held between January 15th and 19th. The summit states that AI both holds the potential to help us solve global challenges while claiming that innovation and guardrails are essential. The WEF cites a recent report by the International Monetary Fund, which claims that nearly 40% of employment and 60% within advanced economies are exposed to AI. Within a session on day two of the forum, headed by Zanny Minton Beddoes, editor in chief of The Economist, AI was described as the transformative technology of our time, while the WEF compared its consequences on global value chains as analogous to the steam engines of the Industrial Revolution. On the same day, Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft, claimed that it's necessary to take the unintended consequences of any new technology alongside AI's benefits instead of waiting and then addressing them. The forum has also seen discussions from Arati Prabhakar, director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, and Brad Smith, vice chair and president of Microsoft, among others, concerning how to direct AI towards planetary development rather than exploitation amid an increase in varied oversight frameworks globally. Thursday further contained a session labeled the hard power of AI, including 
Clegg, president of global affairs at Meta, Jeremy Jurgens, managing director of WEF Geneva, and Kristalina Georgieva, managing director of IMF, among others. Thanks for that update, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from Forbes. The world should leave the WEF feeling slightly better about the chances of a global approach to managing AI. While international legislation remains far out of reach, discussions like those seen in Davos are a positive beginning. AI is a transformative technology, and the sooner its risks are sustainably minimized, the quicker the world's exponential potential can be unlocked. Here's the establishment critical narrative from Diginomica. While CEOs and industry leaders answer comfortable questions posed by high-ranking media members concerning future technology, the WEF has so far failed to really address the doomsday instigating dangers of AI. Reading between the lines of big tech's many discussions at the forum, fears concerning an AI apocalypse remain inadequately answered as Davos's elites continue to play games with the posterity of humanity. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 96% chance of an AI arms race before 2050. Our final story, the blood oxygen feature is removed from Apple Watch to avoid a ban. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by CNBC, ABC7 of Chicago, the Associated Press, Ars Technica, and The Verge. Amid ongoing legal battles with medical device company Massimo, Apple has announced that beginning Thursday it will remove the blood oxygen feature from its latest Apple Watches in order to avoid an import ban. Two of Apple's latest smartwatches were subjected to an import ban after the U.S. International Trade Commission ruled that the device's blood oxygen sensor infringed on Massimo's patents. A U.S. Court of Appeals issued a temporary stay in late December, allowing Apple to sell its watches for the last three weeks. However, on Wednesday, the court refused to extend its order, prompting Apple to remove the feature in question from its Apple Watch Series 9 and Ultra 2. A Monday court filing from the U.S. Customs and Border Protection granted Apple approval to sell its devices without the disputed blood oxygen sensor. The legal battles are far from over, and Apple expects it will take at least another year for its appeal to be resolved. In the meantime, it is selling the latest two Apple Watches for the same price, claiming that the redesigned device is the exact same minus the blood oxygen app. While new Apple Watches being sold will have the pulse oximeter disabled, devices that have already been purchased by customers will still have access to the feature, but Apple did not confirm how long the app will be available to existing owners. Thank you, Scott. Here's Narrative A from Mac Rumors. The Federal Appeals Court made the right decision in not bending the knee to Apple and preserving the integrity of patent protection rights in the U.S. Apple thinks it can do whatever it wants by leveraging its massive corporate power and crushing smaller competitors. However, Massimo is not going down without a fight and is sticking up for the real innovators in technology. At this point, Apple is only relying on name recognition and brand equity to maintain its dominance. And Narrative B comes from the Washington Post. Even in the face of a legal loss, Apple continues to come out on top and assert its status atop the tech mountain. Everyone knew that Apple could not be prevented from selling its iconic watch. And customers will always line up for the company's products whether or not they contain certain niche features like a blood oxygen sensor. Massimo is trying to instigate a battle with Apple over an innocuous feature, but in the end, this whole saga only raised publicity for the Apple Watch and caused only a minor inconvenience for the tech giant. 
And here's a nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 69% chance that any Apple Watch model will feature a blood pressure monitor before 2025. You know, I, f- I feel like it's getting to be too much. If I really need to know my OSAT all the time, I'm, I'm in trouble, right? But also you could just buy one of those little finger diggies, right? And, and you just squeeze that on. Might not be the mm-hmm. most accurate thing in the world, but neither is an Apple Watch, I would say. I wonder how those things work. When I go to the doctor and they put that thing on my fingy and like, what is what is it measuring here? What's going on? Uh, oh, 98, sir. You're all set. Okay. You say so. Your blood is saturated with oxygen. Yeah. Uh, m- one, my question about all this wellness stuff on our phones is where does that data go and who's going to end up stealing it? Well, that's exactly that's- right. And And to support that, right... The privacy thing is huge, and sometimes I dare not bring my mind into that arena because it's very scary. But but even just like removing every possible thing you need from your phone is useful. We've started going to Goodwill and buying uh, analog clocks and putting them mm-hmm. all over our house because I can't like look at my timer and my Zoom screen and right. um, search this exercise and whatever, you know. It's it's too much in one device. Like I want them out, and I want my alarm clock to be one of those old alarm clocks that you can slam on the side of your your bedside table and go slam. Yeah, I want Groundhog Day. Give me give me that one with the flippy numbers. Like give give me that thing. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, flippy numbers, fun. Yeah. Yeah. Give me that. Yeah. I want to um, take all that stuff out of my phone and just have the internet and and text messages. That's it. I don't need the entire Western world knowing how my kidneys are functioning. Thank you for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, January 19th, 2024. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.